Thanks to Audible for supporting The Motley Fool and Industry Focus. Ponzi Supernova, a six-part original series, is available on Audible channels. Check it out at audible.com slash Ponzi. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Chen, and it is Tuesday, March 21st. We will be turning uh, to our mailbag for this episode, and Asit Sharma is joining me via Skype to cover some of the questions from our foolish listeners. Hey, Asit, great to have you back. Great to be here, Vince. Uh, so, uh, as I mentioned, we have a few questions here uh, from our listeners, and uh, I think we should just move on to our first note because we have a lot to cover. And this is coming from Ben. So, this is a two part question, and we will try to juggle these one at a time. But Ben wrote, I was wondering if you could give your thoughts on goodwill, especially when it is over 40% of assets on a common size balance sheet. Factset is a very interesting company, but I am of the belief that goodwill is a filler on the balance sheet. So whenever I see it in this, ma- uh, whenever I see it this massive, I question it. So Factset would traditionally fall under the purview of Gabby in the financial segment of industry focus, but I think the topic of goodwill is a very important one to cover. For the consumer retail industry, we can also talk a little bit about Factset as a company as well. Very interesting business. But let's start it off. Uh, for Goodwill overall, Asa, can you give me a rundown of what Ben is referring to here uh, and just how to look at it? Sure. So, Goodwill represents the excess of fair value in an acquisition. Uh, and we typically think of Goodwill when one company acquires another. I'll give a really simple example uh, between myself and Vince. So Vince has a Frisbee to sell me, and I decide that I really like this Frisbee because I play Ultimate Frisbee. It's a red Frisbee, has the golden trim, and um, it's selling for two bucks uh, on the market. But I really like this Frisbee, and and Vince knows that I really like it. And he and I agree that I'm going to buy it for ten bucks. So once the transaction takes place, I go home and I sit down and do my accounting. I record that there was an outlay of 10 bucks cash. That's one side of the ledger. So 10 goes out. And then what do you think that I record the Frisbee value at? Do I record it at 10 bucks or two bucks? Vince, what do you say? Well, the Frisbee value, you know, if you're doing according to the, uh, I think it's called the purchase accounting method for the Frisbee itself would be recorded at $2. Absolutely. So I put the asset on my books at $2, and there's an $8 hole to fill on my balance sheet. And I book that to an intangible asset called Goodwill. So, two ways you can look at that eight bucks. Either it represents uh, something that in the future I can get value out of. I have this knowledge that someone else is going to want that Frisbee for even more because they recognize the same things I do. You can also look at it as, hmm. I said, why could pay eight bucks for a Frisbee which had a fair market value of $2? And this gets to the heart of a lot of questions about goodwill. Whenever you see a company acquiring another company, you're curious. Has a fair purchase price been paid or has one company overpaid for another? I think that is a, a I think it's a really nice, simple example to present it. And ultimately, you know, the 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 question becomes you know what does that goodwill represent in a lot of cases for uh, these bigger complicated M and A deals between companies um, so for the frisbee you know maybe it's because it happens to be the frisbee that was played in a winning championship 
ultimate frisbee game, so it has that extra, you know, good luck juju, and that's why you're willing to pay the extra eight dollars for that goodwill. But for actual, uh, you know, for actual uh, acquisitions, it might be things like brand power, uh, top tier management or employees, a loyal customer base, the things that just uh, don't end up ref- being reflected when you add up all the assets, like the hard assets, like factories or inventories or patents, cash balances, cash balances, excuse me, on the buyout target, but they still have value that excess you know needs to be reported in some way uh, you know in the books and as you described asset that's where it goes to goodwill um, a big example uh, beyond facts that I wanted to anchor to the consumer retail space uh, one of the bigger deals in recent memory was the Kraft Heinz deal and uh, you know for accounting purposes Heinz was identified as the acquiring company they paid 53 billion dollars in total consideration for Kraft um, but the identifiable stuff that they mention, and you can find all of this in their 10Q and 10K filings. You know, they have 314 million dollars of cash. They have about four billion dollars of property, plant, and equipment, and tangible assets of about 48 billion dollars. But when you take out the liabilities, because this was to be the net assets, you take out things like payables, long-term debt, and in all. Uh, the identifiable assets, less liabilities they acquired, came out to just twenty-two billion dollars. So the rest of that uh, consideration they paid, which amounted to over fifty billion dollars, right? Uh, you know that difference is our goodwill. And the company specifically states in their filing it says the two, uh, the twenty fifteen merger resulted in thirty point five billion dollars of non-tax deductible goodwill, relating principally to synergies expected to be achieved from the combined operations and planned growth in new markets. So you know, just an example there. And, uh, Specific to the consumer retail sector for a very big deal um, that has happened in the past couple of years. Uh, what else, Asit, uh, do you think people need to know in terms of uh, specific to Ben's question? I guess when it reaches this kind of larger, it becomes a larger and larger, larger part of a company's assets on its balance sheet. Uh, are there concerns there? How should investors think about that? Uh, good question. So it really depends on the industry that you're looking at. When goodwill reaches forty percent. On a common size balance sheet, that means that it represents 40% of total assets. That could be a lot of goodwill for no good purpose, especially if the company generates a return off of its fixed assets, tangible assets. So if you look at a company like Caterpillar, which makes most of its money off of heavy earth moving equipment, you wouldn't want to see an extraneous amount of goodwill there because they're in the business of buying equipment, selling that equipment at a reasonable profit, reinvesting those profits and generating cash flow, et cetera. Now, once you start moving down the spectrum to more and more intangible types of revenue, goodwill starts to make a little bit more sense. If you're in the business of selling an intangible, let's say that you're uh, Microsoft and you're selling software, it might make sense for you to purchase lots of intangible assets. One thing that um, our listeners should consider if you do indeed go look at some of these annual reports is there are actually two items that make up intangible assets on a balance sheet. One is goodwill, as we're talking about, and the other is called exactly that, intangible assets. Whatever a company can identify when it purchases another company, the very things that Vince mentioned, such as uh, copyrights, trademarks, patents, software, content, types of technology, To the extent that management can identify a value for each of those items, it books those to intangible assets. Uh, What it really can't uh, assign a certain value to and become subjective is goodwill. 
So investors should be aware that there are actually two items to look at on those balance sheets. Sometimes the goodwill balance is small, but the intangible assets value is quite big. So you got to make sure you look at both of those. Yep, that's a really good point, Asit. Um, and that actually comes up in terms of uh, some of the specific items that you mentioned. Uh, in terms of uh, the software technology, for example, that actually comes up with FactSet. So um, let's kind of shift gears just a little bit um, and put things in the context a little bit for this company. Um, can you give us a, a, a quick rundown of what we're looking at when, in terms of FactSet and their own uh, situation in terms of their goodwill balance? Sure. So FactSet provides uh, market information content to the investment community. And it's grown its goodwill balance through a series of small acquisitions. It's constantly looking to stay up to date with its competitors who are also in the marketplace providing information. So when it acquires a company, it's not really acquiring fixed assets so much as it's acquiring intangible assets that down the road can parlay into more revenue. So what an investor needs to understand is if you had not looked at Vaxit's balance sheet before this conversation, you would have an expectation that maybe it's bigger, the goodwill balance plus the intangible assets relative to a company which is dealing in hard assets, as we talked about before. And I want to read from FactSet's most recent annual report to give you an idea of, of how intangible their revenue base is. Uh, FactSet is a leading provider of integrated financial information and big data analytical applications to the global investment community. We deliver insight and information to investment professionals through our analytics, service, content, and technology. Now, that asset base, if you are an accountant, an auditor, uh, showing up once a year at FactSet's premises, you wouldn't be counting boats. You would not be looking at mechanical things. You'd be looking at software and trying to determine what's the value of this software? What will this mean for revenue down the road? And this is what's important to understand about this company. It is dealing in intangibles. Okay, so um, I'm trying to see here. Ah, okay, so the example I pulled up, and this was a big jump in terms of their goodwill balance, specifically towards the end of 2015. Um, so, Company's balance sheet has goodwill currently of five hundred eight million dollars, just shy of the, uh, just shy of half the total assets for the company at about one point zero five billion dollars. So in the fourth quarter of twenty fifteen, uh, the goodwill balance jumped from three hundred eight million to almost five hundred million dollars, and that specifically was the result of the acquisition of uh, a privately held company called Portware, and the purchase price was just shy of two hundred sixty four million dollars. And again, in FactSet's 10Q, you can find a section on called Business Combination, if you want to look this up. And the company specifies what assets it acquired and how they value out. So, what the company got in terms of tangible assets, and again, this company being uh, much more in the intangible space, those only amounted to $9.7 million for the tangible assets. But then things like the software technology, client relationships, came out to about $75.5 million. Deducting those liabilities, again, assets acquired uh, amounted to $76.2 million. So, that difference between the 76 and then the about 260 or so million dollars that they paid um, gives us the goodwill uh, increase of about 187 million dollars which what uh, increased the balance uh, towards the end of 2015 um, anything else us that you want to add before we move on here in terms of uh, specifically the fact set uh, 
do you are you, do you have a concern here uh, based on you know the rather acquisitive business model and uh, the way they kind of compete in the market where trying to find other services to differentiate it in uh, the financial services community and in terms of offering this research you know I used this myself when I was still in banking and uh, you know Faxo was a very powerful and important tool for us on a day to day basis and it seems like they're kind of branching out more into other. Uh, uh, port where giving them things like automated trading. Uh, any last thoughts? Sure. Um, I do have a slight concern when you see that balance creeping up in that you do want a company to be able to in, innovate internally as it goes along and not just always acquire the technology that's going to turn into revenue later on. And I actually went back really briefly and looked um, at 2012's numbers. Uh, goodwill to total assets was about 35%. So, had a balance of approaching that 40% that our, our listener then is concerned about. Its operating profit margin, FactSet's operating profit before taxes and interest, was about 34%. Now, fast forward to this year, uh, goodwill to total assets is 41.4%, and operating profit margin is 31%. And that actually made me feel a little more comfortable. Yes, the goodwill balance crept up. But the operating margin has largely stayed the same. It's decreased a bit. And that's what you want to look at when you see year after year a company is going out and acquiring these other companies. Look at that relative trend of goodwill to total assets, but also look at net income because it might mean that the acquisitions are sustaining stable profit, which is what you see in this case. And last point, this year, um, or in 2016, Backset was able to sell uh, one of its divisions for $112 million, which made up about a third of net income for the year. So it's actually taking some of that intellectual property, repackaging it down the road, and selling it for a profit. So that's also a positive sign. To me, bottom line, not that worried about the goodwill balance here, but it's a really great question from Ben. You should always be skeptical of those large balances, and you should investigate. Yep. Thank you. I that is an awesome uh, takeaway for me. Uh, the way I look at it is, you know, this isn't really something that you can necessarily evaluate in a vacuum. You need to look at some of those other metrics, like you mentioned, um, to see how they're impacting things like on the bottom line profitability. Uh, as this company or as some of these companies like Faxet have a more uh, acquisitive business model, um, the one thing I do want to add in terms of. Uh, how goodwill can change, and uh, you know how it's evaluated on an annual basis is ultimately these companies that carry these goodwill balances. They need to uh, basically evaluate them and uh, each year to see if they have uh, essentially maintained at least that value. Uh, that they paid for it, and if not, then they can take an impairment charge. Uh, there's been some very famous, uh, or almost infamous examples of these goodwill write-downs. I think the most famous being the AOL Time Warner deal from the early 2000s. Um, they had to suffer a goodwill write-down of over 50 billion dollars, um, and so in some cases, this can be uh, something that you know, an example, I guess, of a company uh, overpaying, but otherwise something you need to over, uh, look at. Uh, more holistically. Uh, in a minute here, Asit and I will be uh, diving into our second listener question. Stay tuned for that. Right now, I want to thank Audible again for supporting the show. Audible Channels has a new original series, Ponzi Supernova, an audio documentary that tells the story of Bernie Madoff, the fam- infamous fraudster who orchestrated the largest Ponzi scheme in history, but that is not even close to the full story. 
drawn from hours of unheard conversations with Madoff and interviews with the SEC, FBI, and victims of the scandal, Ponzi Supernova takes you on a fascinating journey into the darkest depths of our financial system. Uh, when the news of Madoff's multi-billion dollar scheme came to light, I followed it uh, pretty closely myself at the time and actually ended up working less than two blocks from his offices in the uh, Lipstick building. But even after hearing many of my professors dissect the scandal in my business and finance classes, uh, Ponzi Supernova still takes the story to another level. I think it's especially interesting and almost haunting to hear Madoff tell the story in his own words, from prison no less, as he serves out a 150-year prison sentence. So the six-part Audible original series is available on channels. To learn more about Ponzi Supernova, go to audible.com slash Ponzi, then listen Audible and Amazon Prime members listen free. Again, that's audible.com slash Ponzi. Now, for question number two, Asit, uh, David wrote in asking, I would love to see a comparison between Cisco and, uh, or SYY and USFD, that's Cisco and US Foods, specifically revenue versus market cap and revenue versus net income, and how important those numbers are in establishing the appropriate value. So, Cisco and U.S. Foods, uh, these are the two largest food distributors in the country in an otherwise very fragmented industry. Uh, When you think about restaurants, hotels, schools, hospitals, various places that prepare or serve food, um, those places need to get uh, their supplies, like their produce, their meat, and other products supplied from somewhere, and that is where these companies come in. you know, huge industry. I think uh, research, industry research puts this uh, sector at around three hundred billion dollars annually uh, in terms of supplying all these different restaurants and other uh, food, uh, food service uh, businesses. Uh, what do you think? It's a great question that David has. But my first thought is, why do you want to invest in this industry? <laughs> because the profit margins are very low. Everyone yes. knows that uh, grocery stores have low profit margins traditionally. Maybe a Whole Foods has higher margins because it sells specialty products. But if you think of the companies which supply food uh, to institutions, etc., those margins are even lower, 1% to 2% in a year. So that's my first thought. But... Uh, <laughs> Let's read part of his question again. I'd love to see a comparison, specifically revenue versus market cap. Let's pause right there. This is a nice question because in many cases in investing, there's not a really good relationship between revenue and market cap, meaning what a company sells in a year and what its total value is on the stock market. But with these particular companies, it actually is significant. It makes a difference. The reason being that when you're running at a 1% to 2% margin in a year, let's say you're selling $13 billion, $20 billion worth of food, but you only take home that 1% to 2%, then the amount that you sell suddenly becomes important. Both uh, Cisco and U.S. Foods Holding are serial acquirers of business. So going back a little bit to our first uh, question of the day, they do a ton of acquisitions. The reason is that that's the best way to grow sales. It's hard in this industry uh, to go out institution by institution, hospital, you know, to university, et cetera, and, and ex- spread your wares versus buying up the smaller companies. So when you're selling uh, at these margins and then you are acquiring more companies, it becomes important to see what a uh, investor will pay for your sales. And this is really the crux of David's question. He's asking about, hey, the revenue that these guys have versus how it's valued in the market. Um, I've got some numbers to see how they stack up. So, um, 
Cisco, again, listeners, this is not to be confused with Cisco, the uh, tech company, but SYSCO has a market cap currently of about $28 billion, and its trailing 12-month revenue is about $54 billion. So if you take that market capitalization, that stock market value, divided by the revenue, you get 0.52. So we think of that market cap to revenue multiple of being 0.5. Now, U.S. Foods Corp. is a much smaller company, although it's been said, it's also giant, but relatively speaking, um, it has a market cap of just under $6 billion, and it has trailing 12 months revenue of about $23 billion. So that's a capitalization to revenue of 0.25. Uh, in the, the um, screens that you'll encounter when you research your investments, you'll see this more commonly expressed as price to sales. So you can have the price to sales of Cisco as 0.5 and the price to U.S. Foods as 0.25, a half versus a quarter. I'm going to throw it back to Vince and ask him to interpret these numbers for us, and we'll move on from there. Yeah, this is uh, really interesting uh, to see, I think, uh, especially when you look at some other sectors. Um, you know, If you're listening to Dylan's show, for example, and looking at some of the really hot uh, tech companies that come out, the in terms of things like price to sales or some of the multiples you see, they'll be much more generous than this. And I think again it comes down to some of the great points that you made, Asset, in terms of you know this being this uh, being an industry where you see you know Cisco in terms of their bottom line net margin being around two percent, uh, U.S. Foods uh, being around one percent, and. Uh, just really, uh, really tight here, and just like your, uh, if you think about your local supermarket, and I think that uh, when you are in this business, the way the the companies in this space compete, uh, you know, I can tell you, having worked in the restaurant industry for many years uh, in my, with my family's business, uh, you know, customers ultimately they want a large variety of items to choose from. They want deliveries that are on time. They want uh, good, consistent quality, and of course, they want all of that at low competitive prices, right? And uh, as Asit mentioned, the, you know, the scale is really important here because, for example, uh, you know, the more Cisco News Foods. Uh, can procure from their own suppliers, and they work with thousands of companies uh, procuring different items. They they uh, are able to win those volume savings, and they can translate to that more that to more competitive pricing for their customers. Then you combine that with some of the incredibly complex logistics of you know having to store inventory safely, um, being able to deliver it all over the country to these various establishments, and there's a lot of efficiencies and savings that can be sought out in operations as well. So overall, I think it's uh, it, for these two companies here. Uh, you're definitely just looking at the numbers between Cisco and U.S. Foods. You know, even though uh, U.S. Foods, in terms of their top line, being only half of what Cisco generates. Uh, you know, about fifty-four billion dollars of revenue for Cisco versus that twenty-three billion dollars uh, for U.S. Foods. Um, that ratio there. Uh, 0.5 to 0.25. You know, I would generally interpret U.S. Foods as being the in terms of just on that metric, the you know arguably the better value. Yeah, I agree, and this is where we need more nuance to make a determination if you're comparing the two companies. And the second part of David's question helps us with that. So let me read again the second part of his question, which is uh, revenue versus net income. How important is this in establishing 
um, a base value. So let's read the, these figures as well. Again, uh, Cisco's trailing 12-month revenue, $54 billion. It made net income of a billion dollars. That's about a 2% net profit margin. And U.S. Foods had, as Vince was saying, about $23 billion worth of revenue. It made a profit of $210 million, and that's approximately a 1% net profit margin. Now, again, this goes back to my first question. Why do you want to buy these businesses? <laughs> but I do see, uh, especially with U.S. Foods, it's much smaller, and it's mostly domestic, so there's probably some growth opportunity there. Typically, when we look at net profit and want to talk about valuation, we consider earnings. Usually that's just the net income divided by total number of shares outstanding. You get earnings per share. Personally, I love the forward P-E ratio, so the forward price to earnings ratio. Whenever I'm looking at an industry for the first time or two companies for the first time, I'd like to know, hey, based on what these companies are projected to make over the next year in earnings, earnings per share, um, how is the stock price in relation to those projected earnings? Many people prefer the trailing 12 months P-E ratio, uh, which is a look backward. I like to look forward. The other thing that I'm very keen on doing, uh, I don't have a lot of depth uh, in the food service industry, but I do in the grocery industry, and they're very similar, is as a whole, if you take all the companies that are in this basket on average, uh, so think of companies like Aramark, which is a competitor to each of these two companies, what is the price-to-earnings ratio, forward ratio, in the industry as a whole? And I looked this up for food service uh, just now in the S&P 500. That forward P-E ratio is about 19.6. So we get down to what is the forward P-E ratio of U.S. Foods and Cisco? What are these ratios versus the industry? And uh, according to Yardeni uh, research, again, that industry a P ratio of 19.6. Here's how it stacks up. Uh, Cisco trades at a forward PE ratio of 21 times earnings, and U.S. Food trades at a forward ratio of about 20 times earnings. So these companies are both priced right at the market within their industry. They're not too high, they're not too low, which then throws more emphasis on that first measure we looked at. And as Vince was saying, hey, U.S. Foods looks like it's comparatively undervalued versus its bigger competitor, this next step we've taken, David's second question, shows us that, well, you know, that may be what we have to go on here because neither one of these companies has tremendous operating leverage. I would go back if I was interested now maybe in a U.S. Foods versus um, Cisco, I'd read the management's discussion and analysis part of their uh, 10K annual report and see what the strategy is for the next year. See if there's operating leverage that they can then uh, turn into higher earnings and move that forward P-E ratio a bit up. Thanks, Asit. Uh, one more, th uh, something that you brought up again uh, in terms of you know, you know how similar this industry can be to uh, the supermarkets that a lot of, uh, that we have previously discussed on the show before, um, and just an example of something that comp you know these companies are trying to do to do uh, to boost profitability. For example, when the margins are so tight, um, you know, for example, comp those companies are developing you know in-house private brand pri private brands, uh, you know, with better margins that they can offer to customers. And for U.S. Foods, for example, their private brands make up 33% of their organic sales from 2016. And uh, you know, overall, and you know, looking at 
with uh, these two companies, things to watch. Uh, something to keep in mind for Cisco, for example, is you know they actually recently had a uh, pretty uh, big deal. I think it was about three billion dollars or so uh, for uh, essentially a. F- Moving into the European market, so uh, already the leader. I think the market share numbers that I could find between Cisco and U.S. Foods about sixteen and eight percent, sixteen percent and eight percent respectively uh, for the North American market. So Cisco trying to branch out. Uh, so there's a big growth opportunity there for them, and also on the Cisco side too. Uh, after this acquisition of Breaks, um, you know Cisco's a dividend aristocrat. They pay two point five percent dividend yield. Have been paying that uh, for I think. Uh, for over 30 years at this point, giving them that dividend aristocrat status. So those are just some other things to keep in mind. Uh, otherwise, um, you know, this is definitely uh, what I could be considered, you know, a more stable industry. Uh, the idea that you're always going to need food service distributors, companies like these, to supply the restaurants that we go to, to supply the leisure industry, the hotel industry. Um, but finding the differences between them, you know, that scale makes a big difference. And uh, other any other final thoughts from you, Asa, before we wrap up? Just one last thought. I love that you uh, brought up the Breaks acquisition, and if you are interested in Cisco, uh, they do a really good job on their reporting of. They've done a good job in this first update of peeling back the Breaks numbers, so you can see how the rest of the business is doing, and it has made a, a fairly big impact on the profit and loss statement. So quarter by quarter. Make sure you see how the U.S. business is still growing. It's still pretty slow, but again, you commend management on showing you the two different numbers in a clear fashion. All right. Well, uh, thanks again, Asif, for joining us today. And Fools, you can always reach out to us and the rest of the IF crew via Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can send us any questions to industryfocus at fool.com. And don't forget to check out uh, podcast.fool.com for more content. People on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.